Well, there you go. We like to have a lot of fun here at Grace, as you can tell. And uh, man, it is great to have you here. If you are a guest or if it's your first time here at Grace Church, a very special welcome to you. Thanks for being with us. And uh, welcome to this conversation that we've been having for the past couple of weeks. It's actually the third week uh, of our conversation called What's the Difference? And if you are just kind of tuning in, we said that this whole series really just has one kind of simple goal. And so the goal of this series, just to kind of review, is this. We said that this series, we want to explore and to explain the key differences between New Testament Christianity, uh, what we call the gospel, that of course is the message uh, that we believe, that we adhere to here at Grace Church. So we're saying, what is the difference between New Testament Christianity and other major faith systems? So other uh, world religions, other faith positions that people might have. So what we're doing in this series is just quite simple. We're exploring and explaining that. We're saying, hey, is there a difference between uh, different religions that we see in the world and different faith systems and New Testament Christianity? And if there are differences, what are those exactly? And so we're looking to kind of do that together to explore and to explain those differences. But we said also with this goal that there's a way that we want to approach this conversation. There is a certain tone that we want to take uh, as we go through this series together. And we said we want to have this conversation with charity and with clarity, with both charity and clarity. Of course, what I mean by that is by charity, we mean uh, we want to make sure that we're having this conversation with grace and with respect and, uh, and with uh, a good amount of consideration of other people. And so we said that basically our goal is not to be harsh in our tone. Our goal is not to bash other belief systems or faith systems, but our goal is to be charitable in the way that we have this conversation. But we said not just with charity, but also with clarity, uh, that we also want to be clear. We want to be clear that, yes, there actually are some differences. And I think in a society today where it can get real fuzzy and real foggy, uh, what are the differences between different religions? I think a conversation like this is actually really important uh, because it can bring a lot of clarity to the whole thing. So that's kind of our goal. In fact, another way I might say it is this. Our hope is that this conversation would be both honoring and honest, So both of those things at the same time. And so I recognize and I understand uh, that not everybody in this room, for example, is a follower of Jesus. Uh, Some of you might be in a place where maybe you're investigating Jesus. You're actually not sure where you land with the faith thing. Uh, Maybe you're a person who adheres to a different religious belief uh, than we would here at Grace Church. And let me just say that if that's you, and, you know, we say this all the time, and I really do mean it. I'm actually really glad you're here. I'm really glad you're here. And we oftentimes say, if you're a person who's investigating Christianity, you're investigating Jesus, we count it an absolute honor and privilege that you would let us be part of that investigation. You could take that anywhere. And the fact that you're here, we don't, we don't treat that lightly. And so I'm glad you're here. But like we said, uh, there are some differences though. And so our hope is to just be kind of clear about that. So the first week in the series, what we did, uh, if you were here, you might remember, we actually did an introduction and we spent the whole week kind of talking about the reason for this series, why we think it's so important to do this. If you missed that, I think it would be helpful for you to go back and listen to that. That was a couple weeks ago. Last week, we had a really fascinating conversation, and we talked about what is the difference between New Testament Christianity and cults. And so Pastor Seth did a really awesome job walking us through, hey, what what constitutes a cult? And uh, how is New Testament Christianity not a cult? How is that different? And so last week, we had that conversation. That was really great. You can go back and listen to that if you want to on our podcast, our app, on our website. All of those things are for free. Uh, but today what we're going to do is uh, we're going to spend our whole time today thinking about and talking about um, Catholicism. 
So that's what we're going to be focusing on today for the rest of our time, is we're going to be asking the question, uh, what is the difference between the Roman Catholic Church and the Roman Catholic belief system and uh, New Testament Christianity in the gospel? Or in other words, what is the difference between the Catholic Church and a church like this one? What is the difference? That's the question we're going to be thinking through together. And I think um, that this is one of those topics. I, I know that even when I put that on the screen, uh, this is one that's immediately relevant to many people who are in this room. Uh, I know that we live in a place uh, in the world, in Medina, Ohio, uh, where many, many, many people grew up in a Catholic background. Maybe there's many of you who would classify yourself as a Catholic person. And so I think this conversation is going to be very relevant to many of us who are here today. And let me just say, before you even jump into this, I am coming from a place of great respect uh, for all of those who would consider themselves Catholic or who grew up that way. I have um, always, always, always admired the amount of respect and awe that the Catholic Church uh, oftentimes will, will kind of express towards God. I actually feel like that's something that we at Grace Church could learn quite a bit from the Catholic Church. It's just the reverence and awe that's expressed towards God in those things. Uh, just to give you a little bit of my story, I actually grew up in the Catholic Church. That's a little bit of my background. And it actually probably be better to say I grew up around the Catholic Church. It's actually less accurate to say uh, that I was Catholic than it is to say that I'm Italian. And so because I'm Italian, I just kind of inherited Catholicism. I was sort of born into it. And I actually see some of you shaking your head, and so maybe that's you. You kind of grew up, maybe you're Italian or you're Irish. And so because of that, you just kind of inherited the whole Catholic thing. And that was kind of me. In fact, I actually think it's kind of funny. Whenever I go to family gatherings, still to this day, uh, my family members will come up and they'll ask me questions like, they'll say like, hey, uh, how are things at your parish? And I'll say things like, um, uh, good, they're going really good. Or they'll say, uh, how many masses do you have now at your parish? And I'll say, uh, many. We have many masses at our parish. I actually still have a buddy who to this day calls me Father Linguini. So that's a thing. I have that going for me too. So all I'm saying is... Um, because I'm familiar with, with Catholicism, I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with the Catholic Church, I just want to let you know that I actually recognize that this conversation that we're having is going to be somewhat different from the other world religions that we're going to be talking about in weeks to come. And here's why I know that this is going to be a little bit different. It's because when it comes to the Catholic Church and what the Catholic Church believes and this church, we actually have a large amount of similarities, and so there are a lot of things that we share in common with the Catholic Church. So before we talk about the differences, let me just first talk about some of the big similarities because there are some big items that we really agree on. So, for example, some of the big similarities, both the Roman Catholic Church and this church, which would say that we are centered on the gospel and New Testament Christianity, uh, we would say, man, we agree on Jesus. Like we, we agree, which is a big deal. Uh, we agree on Jesus. We believe that Jesus was sent from God, that he is God's son, uh, that he was fully divine, that he was fully human, that he lived a perfect life, that he died a sacrificial death on the cross, that three days later he rose from the grave, that the only way that you gain access to a right relationship with God is through faith in Christ. Like we agree on that, and I'm just telling you, that's a big deal. That's a big deal because that is a big ticket item. The other thing I would say we agree on is we actually agree on our view of God. We agree, we agree on something called the Trinity, and so this is very different than other world religions. We would look and we would say, man, Scripture teaches 
that there is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And of course, that is a point of agreement where this church and the Roman Catholic Church would say, yeah, we actually agree on the nature of God. We would say that we agree that the church is God's agent of hope in the world, uh, that Jesus Christ commissioned the church to be his expression of his love and his care and his mission to the community and the world in which it finds itself. So we would say, yeah, man, we actually agree on those things. So these are, again, these are big things that we agree on, big ticket items. And I think because of these agreements, many people would look and they would say, well, yeah, so it's basically the same, right? Like this church and the Catholic Church are basically the same. And the answer to that question is, well, actually there are some differences. There are, even though there's a lot of similarities, there are some differences. And our desire, once again in this series, is to be clear, is just to be clear about what those are. And so I wanna talk a little bit today about what is the difference? What is the difference between uh, this church and the Roman Catholic Church? So for example, uh, if you're a person who grew up in the Catholic Church or around the Catholic Church, have you ever found yourself asking this question? Have you ever found yourself asking the question, how come? So I know as a teenager, I remember I started to ask this question, how come? So for example, how come in the Roman Catholic Church, they baptize babies, they practice infant baptism, but in other churches like this church, we don't, we don't practice infant baptism. What's, what's behind that? Or how come, how about this one? How come in the Catholic Bible, there's 73 books? in that Bible, and yet, if you were to take one of the Bibles under the chairs underneath you, there's 66. So what, what, what caused that to happen? That seems like a big deal. How about this one? How come um, in the Roman Catholic Church you are required to confess your sins to a priest? And so um, you have to confess to a priest, and the priest will give you penance, and here at Grace Church, like, we don't do that. You know, you don't have to come confess your sins to me or to Pastor Seth or anything like that. How come in the Roman Catholic Church Priests don't get married, right? Priests basically commit their life to a life of celibacy. And how come in a church like this, pastors oftentimes do get married and often have a lot of kids, right? Like, why is that a thing? Uh, why is it that priests uh, wear robes and pastors, uh, well, we don't wear robes, right? Some of you are like, I don't even know what you're wearing. And, and uh, yeah, how about this? How come uh, the Catholic Church teaches doctrine like purgatory? And by the way, if you don't know what purgatory is, by the end of today's conversation, you'll be familiar with what that is. But how is it that the Roman Catholic Church would teach something like that, and then a church like this would deny something like that? Like, what's behind that? Or how about this one? How come uh, the Roman Catholic Church has a pope, and our church is, is popeless, right? We have no pope. Uh, why, why is that the case? How come the Roman Catholic Church takes communion every week? And so every week they, they practice and observe the Eucharist, Whereas here, uh, we would take communion less frequently than that, less frequently than every week. And so, so all I'm saying is, and I could give you just a whole bunch of other stuff, a, a, a much bigger list than this, but all I'm trying to say is you can see that there are differences. There are many differences. And here's the question I want you to think about with me. Are these differences that we see, are these merely a matter of preference? Is it just stylistic differences? Is it just like, hey, some people like to worship this way and some people like to worship this way? Or is there more behind it? Is there something bigger behind the differences that we see? Now, obviously, it would take me weeks and weeks and weeks to talk through each and every single one of these items that are on the screen. But I believe you can actually boil it down to one key difference. I think you can take all these differences and you can boil it down and say there's actually one main difference. And what is that difference? Well, I think what it boils down to is this issue right here. I think it's the issue of the nature of salvation. 
Okay, that's the issue, the nature of salvation. Now, I know when I say that, the nature of salvation, that might sound very academic to some of you. You might be like, I don't even know what that means. So let me see if I can just simplify this a little bit. Both the Roman Catholic Church and a church like this one, who adheres to New Testament Christianity and the gospel, we would both look and we would say, we, we believe that Jesus Christ saves, that a person is only saved because of faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done. The Roman Catholic Church would say yes and amen, and we would say yes and amen. It is only through Christ that a person is saved and is made right with God. But here's where the issue lies. How exactly that salvation works, that's where the difference is. So what is God's part and what is my part in that salvation? And that is where you will find the difference. And let me just tell you, because again, we wanna have this conversation with as much clarity as we can. It's actually a very big difference. It's not a small difference. It's a pretty big difference, all right? So let me just say that this issue right here, the nature of salvation, is one that has actually been a point of struggle uh, throughout the entire history of the church. It shows up in many ways throughout church history. In fact, the first place that we see this struggle show up is actually in the first century, and all the way back in the first century. And so today what I wanna do is I actually wanna take you back to the first century, and I wanna show you a place where this struggle first showed up. I think it's gonna shed a whole lot of light on this conversation, but I wanna show you how it showed up back in 64 AD first with a group of Jewish Christians. So if you got a Bible, I wanna ask you if you grab it and you would open it with me to Galatians chapter two. All right, so Galatians two is where we're gonna head. And, um, and this is a passage, like I said, we're gonna see a circumstance that occurred back in 64 AD in the first church among uh, a group of Jewish Christians. And you might remember in the book of Galatians, we've been basing this whole series out of this book, the book of Galatians. It's an amazing book of the Bible and uh, it, it's incredibly insightful and I think helpful to our conversation today as well. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, uh, page 811 and the Bible's under the chairs is where you're gonna find Galatians, so feel free to use those. If you don't own a Bible, take one of those. We'd love for you to have one and you can just make that a gift. Okay, so Galatians 2 is where we're gonna go. Now, again, we're gonna start off in verse 11 and I think this passage is gonna be super helpful to us today and it's a very exciting passage. And it all begins, we're gonna see in verse 11, with a showdown. It all starts with a showdown. All right, so check this out, starting off in verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. All right, so let me just go ahead and hit pause there for a minute. I want you to get your mind around this with me. So here's what the Bible says. Okay, so this is the Apostle Paul who is writing to the Galatians, all right? And he is recounting a situation that happened in a place called Antioch. Now, if you're just joining us here at Grace or you haven't been with us in the past couple of weeks, we've actually talked about the Apostle Paul a little bit over the last couple of weeks. The Apostle Paul was a very prominent first century uh, church leader. In fact, he was such, such a prominent leader, they call him the Apostle Paul, that oftentimes historians and commentators call him the greatest of the apostles because of his influence in the spread of Christianity in the first century. This guy was a spiritual heavyweight, all right? So that's the Apostle Paul. And look what he says. He says, listen, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Now, some of you, maybe if you're newer to the Bible, you might be asking, okay, so I've, maybe I've heard about the Apostle Paul before, but who's this guy Cephas? All right, well, Cephas is actually just another name for Peter. And my guess is, even if you're not familiar with the Bible, um, you've probably heard of Peter. 
Now, Peter is arguably the most famous of Jesus' disciples. He also was an extremely prominent leader in the early church. In fact, to this day, do you know what Roman Catholics believe about Peter? Who do they believe he was? Does anybody know? Yeah, he was the first pope. That's what they believe. So here you have two very, very prominent spiritual heavyweight leaders. And look what the Bible says. Paul says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Some of your translations say, I opposed him to his face because he was wrong. He was in the wrong. So clearly you can see there's something going down in this passage. There is a dispute, there's a confrontation, and it's not a small dispute and it's not a small confrontation because these are two of the main pillars in the church, right? This would be like, in modern day terms, this would like be like Billy Graham going up and starting a confrontation with the Pope. That's what it would be, something like that, all right? That kind of intensity. So what caused this confrontation? Well, look what Paul says. He says this in verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he, Peter, used to eat with the Gentiles. All right, let's pause for a second. Let me tell you why that's a big deal. So what he says is, Peter, who was a Jewish man, was eating with the Gentiles, which, by the way, Gentiles is, is a word that just means a non-Jewish person. Here's why that was such a big deal. Back in first century times, Jews and Gentiles had no association with each other. They did not mix well. They did not play together. And the reason was because to the Jewish person, the Jewish people believed that they were accepted by God and they were made right with God based on their adherence to the Old Testament law. And so the Jewish people would practice uh, dietary restrictions that were in the Old Testament. Uh, they would practice certain ceremonies and certain, they would obey a certain type of lifestyle that was laid out in the Old Testament. And they believed that that was what made them different and that's what made them right with God. Well, the Gentiles did none of that. They didn't obey any of the Old Testament laws or any of those type of things. And so because of that, the Jews basically said, the Gentiles are like capital S sinners. And so we just don't hang out with them. Well, all that changed after Jesus. Jesus comes on the scene and Jesus lives a perfect life. Jesus was the only one who obeyed all of the Old Testament law perfectly. And then the Bible tells us that after Jesus gave his life on the cross and he rose from the dead, he offered salvation to everybody, Jew and Gentile alike. And basically what Jesus said was, faith in me is what saves you. It's not the Old Testament law. It's not your adhesion to some type of moral code. Or, it's just you put your faith in me and that's how you're saved, both Jews and Gentiles. Now that is what the New Testament Christians taught Peter taught that, and he's here, you see, he's eating with the Gentiles. Eating with someone in the first century, by the way, that was a way of saying, I accept you, and you're one of us. So Peter was eating with the Gentiles. Great, good, but look what happens. It says, but when they arrived, all right, who? When who arrived? Well, I'll show you here in a second. It says, when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to, now here it is, the circumcision group. Now, some of you are like, man, that's weird. The circumcision group. You're like, how, why would you even identify yourself as a group that way? And how would you even know you're part of that group? Don't think about it too much, all right? But the, the circumcision group. So you're like, what is that mean? Okay, so let me help you out a little bit. The circumcision group was referring to a group of Jewish Christians, okay? So these guys were not Gentiles, they were Jews. And they believed in Jesus, they said, we believe that Jesus saves us. But they believed this. 
Jesus saves us plus the Old Testament law. So yes, you have to put your faith in Christ, but you also have to adhere to the Old Testament law. So you have to keep the dietary restrictions and you have to be circumcised because that's what the Old Testament teaches you to do. And basically what they would tell the Gentiles is, yes, you need Jesus, but you also need the Old Testament law if you wanna be accepted by God. That's what they taught. And so look what happens. The Bible says that when they came there, Peter started to separate himself. He's like, I, I'm not gonna eat with the Gentiles anymore. Why? Because he was afraid. He was scared of what they would think. He was afraid that they would judge him for sitting down with the Gentiles. Now, you can imagine what happens, right? This is Peter, probably one of the most prominent church leaders, maybe the most prominent church leader at that time. He gets up and walks to the other side of the cafeteria, and guess what happens? The other Jews joined him. They're all like, well, Peter's going, we're going. We're following Peter. So they all do in this act of hypocrisy. In fact, this was such a big deal that look what the Bible says. It says that by their hypocrisy, get this, man, even Barnabas was led astray. Man, even Barnabas. And some of you are like, I don't know why you're getting so heated about that. Like, I don't know who Barnabas is. Well, let me just kind of tell you that to the Galatian crowd and to the early church, when he said that Barnabas was led astray, that would have been so shocking to them. It would have been so shocking. And so why don't we, why don't we just try this? Can you just, can you just humor me for a second? Just, you know, we, we got to get into this thing. So let's get into the spirit of the text a little bit. So I'm going to read this again, all right? And after I say that even Barnabas was led astray, I want you to pretend like you're the Galatian crowd, and I want you to give me your best shock, okay? Shock and awe. Can we try that? Some of you are like, dude, you're a nerd. I know, but just humor me, all right? So here we go. Check this out. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. <laughs> I know. I know. That was really good, by the way, you guys. That was really good. You're like, not Barnabas. And I'm like, yeah, man, Barnabas. And you're like, who's Barnabas? <laughs> so... I say, man, you got to read your Bible, all right? <laughs> Barnabas, Barnabas is one of the coolest dudes in the New Testament. He's awesome. Barnabas was the guy who his name meant son of encouragement. This guy was so encouraging that they called him the encourager. That was his name. He was known for that all around the world. This is a guy who sold his property in the book of Acts and gave the money to the poor. He's a super generous guy. This is a guy, he was a traveling companion with the Apostle Paul. He was one of the first ones who went out and told the Gentiles about the good news of Jesus Christ and watched these church planted. One of the church that he helped plant was the church in Galatia. And so this is a dude who was almost always on the right side of every issue. And so when he's like, dude, even Barney was led astray, they're like, no, we're shocked about this. So what does Paul do when he sees this? Well, here's what he does. Look at this. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, wow, that is an important statement right there. You could probably preach an entire sermon just on that. Basically, what Paul says is Peter and Barnabas and the others believed the gospel, but they were not living in line with it. They were acting in a way that was incongruent with what they said they believed to be true. They were out of step, they were out of line. They're acting in hypocrisy, is what he says. So he says, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of all of them, you're a Jew, and yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. So how is it then that you are forcing Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? 
there's the issue. He said, Peter, you believe the gospel, right? That a person is saved not by the works of the law, but because of faith in Christ alone. That's what you believe. And yet, when these guys show up, you go and you dissociate yourself from the Gentiles and essentially tell them that the only way that they can really be accepted by God is that they have to become like you and become Jewish. He's like, that's an act of hypocrisy. And then Paul goes on to say this next thing. Now, so I want you to notice this. Verse, what we're gonna see in verse 15 and 16 is so important because this is maybe the most important two verses in this entire passage. And this is certainly two of the most important verses in the history of the Christian church. These verses are a big deal. And here's what Paul says. This is the crux of the issue. This is the heart of the matter. Here's what he says. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, I know that even when I read this, these verses are so important. And I know that even when I read it, it sounds a little confusing. So let's just see if we can break it down a little bit. So what's the key issue that you see in verses 15 and 16? Well, if you read it, you'll notice he brings it up three times. What's the key issue? Justified, justified. How is a person justified? That's the issue. Now, I know, again, uh, the word justified is not a word that we tend to use in our everyday language. Um, but I just tell you, it sounds like a churchy word. It's actually a very simple word, and it has a very simple definition. So what does justified mean? All right, well, let me give you a definition. In the Greek language, the word justified means literally to be made right. That's what it means. It means to be approved. It actually was a legal term. It was a legal term. So imagine that you're standing before a judge, and you are guilty of a crime. And that judge looks at you, and basically he says to you, you are cleared of all of your charges. You are made right. You are approved. You are free to go. Your record has been expunged. That's the idea of being justified. The opposite, just to be really clear, the opposite of justified is condemned. So here's the issue. How is a person made right? How is a person approved? How is a person able to stand before God and be clean and be clear? Right? To not be condemned, but to be justified. That's the issue. And do you notice what the Apostle Paul says? He says it three times. A person is not justified by works of the law. Not by works of the law. It's not by the works of the law. He says it three times. He says a person is not made right. Not made right. Because of their works and their efforts and their behavior. That's not how a person is made right. So how is a person justified then? Well, notice he says it three times. By faith in Jesus Christ. By faith in Jesus Christ. By faith in Jesus. In other words, it's not by your works. It's by his work. It's not by what you do. It's by what he's done. That's what it is. It's faith in Christ. If I could put it in as simple terms as I know how to, here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. The Apostle Paul is saying, here's how salvation works. You believe, you put your faith in Jesus, and the moment you put your faith in Christ and what he's done for you, you're immediately justified. You are made right and you are approved, not based on what you do, but because of what he's done. And then you're free to live a life of obedience to God. Now you can live out of a heart of gratitude and obedience to God. That's what Paul would say. 
these Jewish leaders were teaching this. They said, no, you believe, you put your faith in Christ, then you have to keep the law, and by doing that, then you're justified. And Paul comes in and he says, these things sound similar, but they're very different. And Paul looks and he says, these are not the same thing. In fact, the apostle Paul is basically saying this, these are not two denominations of the same religion. He's saying these are two entirely different religions. And here, see, here's the crazy thing, is that both parties believed in Jesus Christ. Both parties believed that he lived a perfect life, that he was from God, that he died on the cross, that he was raised on the third day, and that salvation was found in faith in Christ. They both believed that, and yet Paul says these are different things. These are different things. All right, so here's the question. What does this have to do with the Catholic Church? All right, some of you are like, I thought we were talking about Catholicism. What does any of this have to do with Catholicism? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, more than you think, a lot more than you might think. In fact, did you know that these very same two verses that I showed you, verse 15 and 16, that they actually created a very similar dispute about 1,500 years later? And so in the 1500s, uh, there was a very, very famous event that was called the Protestant Reformation. Some of you may have heard of that. If you haven't, you should look it up. It's really fascinating. But basically in the 1500s, there was a Roman Catholic priest by the name of Martin Luther. And uh, Martin Luther, one day, according to history, was reading the book of Galatians and not just reading the book of Galatians, he was reading this passage and not just reading this passage, he was reading these verses. And as a result of reading these verses, Martin Luther became convinced and he became convicted that what was happening in the Roman Catholic Church was different than what he was reading in New Testament Christianity and the gospel. This ultimately is what caused Martin Luther to call into question the authority of the Pope. It's what caused him to call into question the authority of the Catholic Church. And ultimately, it's what caused him to risk his life and say, I must part ways with the Catholic Church because I believe that what I'm reading in the gospel and what I'm reading in New Testament Christianity in the book of Galatians is different than what I see in the Catholic Church. So here's the question then, what did Martin Luther see? What did he see in the Roman Catholic Church? What did he see in Galatians that caused him to say these are not the same thing? So let me see if I can explain it this way to you. So I'm gonna ask you to bear with me for a minute. I wanna show you a visual. I'm kind of a visual person, so this helps me. Hopefully it helps you to understand the difference, but you gotta stick with me a little bit and think about this, all right? So basically what Martin Luther said is when he looked at the Roman Catholic Church and he looked at what their theology taught, he basically saw that salvation in the Roman Catholic Church was expressed this way, okay? So the Roman Catholic Church would teach that when a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ and they believe that Jesus has died on the cross for their sin and they embrace and accept that in their life, uh, what Roman Catholics would tell you is that you now begin the process of salvation. You enter into a state of grace. Okay, so it's a state of grace that you are now in. And so you accept Jesus Christ, you believe in him, that's where it all starts. That's where your faith begins. You're in a state of grace, and you're now entering into a process of salvation. Now, here's what the Roman Catholic Church would teach. They would say, well, now that you have entered into a state of grace, you are not yet justified. So you are not yet fully approved. You are not yet fully accepted by God. Not yet. And so here's the question then, is how do you get from here to here? How do you get from 
faith in Christ to being fully approved by God. How do you do that? And here's what the Roman Catholic Church would tell you. You do that, you're justified by works. There's certain things you need to do in order to be made right and to earn grace, to grow in grace, so that you can be justified. Now, again, I wanna be charitable and respectful. And so if you're a person who uh, is, a, is a Catholic, if you would identify yourself that way, the way that a Catholic would, would, would explain this is they would say that justification is attained by cooperating with grace through works. That's the way that they would say that. So let me see if I can explain this another way. So for example, one of the big differences between uh, this church and the Roman Catholic Church would be our view of the Bible. So that would be one of the points where we would, uh, where we would be different. So at our, a church like ours, we would say that we believe the Bible is the word of God. Uh, we believe that the Bible is given to us by God, that it's the way that we know God's heart, it's the way that we know the path to salvation. And we would say that the Bible has authority over us. That's what we would say. O- over me, over all of us, that's what we would say. Now, the Roman Catholic Church would say this. They would say, yes, we believe that the Bible is the word of God, but they would also say not just the Bible. It's the Bible plus tradition, sacred tradition. So I'll just show you. This is a paragraph from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. The Catechism of the Catholic Church is basically a compendium of church traditions. And here's what the Catechism would say in paragraph 82. It would say that both Scripture, that's the Bible, Both the Bible and tradition, sacred tradition, must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. And so basically what the Catholic Church would say is, yes, the Bible, but also sacred tradition. So real quick, a lot of those differences I was talking to you about earlier, like why do Catholics do this and Protestants don't do that and why why are those differences there? A lot of that can be explained because of sacred tradition, right? That there are some things you're not gonna find in the Bible, but you are gonna find in tradition. And to a Roman Catholic, both the Bible and tradition carry equal weight. Now, because of that, one of the things that sacred tradition teaches in the Catholic Church is it teaches something called the seven sacraments. Okay, now, let me just ask you, how many of you have heard of or are familiar with the seven sacraments? Anybody in this room? Okay, man, a lot of you are. Okay, so the seven sacraments, in case you've never heard of that, these are things that you don't necessarily find in the Bible, but you do find in sacred tradition. And they would include things like infant baptism, Okay, that's found, uh, by the way, these numbers that are in the brackets, in case you're wondering about that, that's the paragraph number where you can find these items in the catechism of the Catholic Church. So I'm just saying you can fact check this stuff if you want to. So baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist, which the Eucharist is, is communion, um, penance, which is confessing to a priest, and then the priest uh, assigns you penance, pray this many Our Fathers, this many Hail Marys, um, the anointing of the sick, holy orders, and matrimony. Okay, so these are the seven sacraments. Now, here's what the Roman Catholic Church would teach. They would say that observing these sacraments is necessary for salvation. So if you truly wanna be justified and saved, that it comes through an adherence to these seven sacraments of grace. So if I could draw it out for you, I would say that in the Roman Catholic Church, the Christian life, they would say, should look something like this. That basically... There's a certain amount of works that you do that are going to help you grow in grace so that you can be justified and approved by God. So for example, when you put your faith in Christ, you must be baptized. And when you're baptized, that is your entryway into the grace of God. You are now in the process of being saved. They would say this. They would say that 
as you grow in grace, there's gonna be times in your life that you sin. And that's true, we all sin, right? Uh, on a very regular basis, we sin. Now the Catholic Church would call regular daily sin, they would call that venial sin. So if you sin, what do you need to do? Well, they say, well, when you sin, you actually lose grace and you actually kind of, uh, I don't know if lose is the right word, you decrease in your state of grace. And so what you need to do is you need to go to your priest, confess your sin, and he will give you penance. And if you do that penance, you will return to a proper state of grace. The Catholic Church would also teach you this. They would say that every week you go to church and you take the Eucharist, that is a way of growing in the grace of God, that you do that over time. Now, here's something else that's real fascinating. The Roman Catholic Church would also teach you this. They would say that there are certain sins that if you commit them, they are so heinous and they are so terrible that you actually fall from grace entirely. And so, for example, that would be like if you did something really bad, like if you murdered somebody, or like, I mean, really, really bad, like if you were a Michigan fan, like they would be like, you're done. And that's actually where we agree with the Catholic Church, by the way, <laughs> on that one. So we're, we're in, uh, anyway, so... But what they would say is, they would say this, they would say that the Christian life needs to look something like this, and by the time you get to the end of your life, chances are good there's gonna be a gap. There's gonna be a gap between where you are and where you need to be to be approved by God. So here's the question, what happens in the gap? All right, well, this is where purgatory comes in. All right, so they would teach that in the gap, there's something called purgatory. All who die in God's grace and friendship but are still imperfectly purified are indeed assured of their eternal salvation, but after death they undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. The church gives the name purgatory to this final purification of the elect, which is entirely different from the punishment of the damned. So in other words, they're like, there's an intermediate spot. There's a place that you go between this life and eternity where you purge or where you pay for whichever sins remain until you're fully justified before God. So they would teach. Now, that is how the Roman Catholic Church would explain the process of salvation. Now, what I want to be clear about is that that is very different. That is very different than what the book of Galatians says. That is different than New Testament Christianity and the gospel. So what does the gospel say? Here's what the gospel would say. The gospel would say that salvation, that grace is not a state. Grace is a standing. And the moment that a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ, the moment that happens, you are justified. You are approved, you are forgiven, your record has been expunged, and you are made right with God right then and right there in that moment. And now you're not in a state of grace, you are in a standing of grace. You are saved, you are accepted, you are forgiven. Okay, that's what Galatians says. Look what Galatians 2 says yet again. A person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, in what Jesus has done for you. Not based on what you do, but based on what Christ has done for you. You are justified by faith, justified by faith, not by works of the law, is what he says over and over again in Galatians 2. Or consider this. Consider what it says in Romans chapter 4. The apostle Paul says, now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. Now, let me explain what he's what he means by that. He basically says, hey, look, if you wanna do the works thing, he says, if you wanna play, play by works, he says a worker earns wages. They don't get gifts. But look what he says next. He says, however, to the one who doesn't work, but they trust God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is what's credited to them as righteousness. How is it that you're made right with God? Through faith 
in Jesus, not by work. It's not how it works here. And so, and so what the gospel is going to say is this. The gospel is going to say that the entire Christian life should be an ever-increasing growth towards Christ-likeness, but you are not working for justification. You are working from justification. You are accepted. You are loved. And now you can live a life uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit in such a way that you can be more and more like Jesus every day. That's what the Christian life would look like. I think in some ways, you know, if you think about the difference between these two things, you think about adoption. I think that's actually a really helpful illustration. You think about a child who's an orphan. At the moment that they're adopted, they are legally declared to be a family member of yours. And that is, not, that, is not, that is a moment. That is something that happens. Now, that child, the moment they're adopted, man, they are part of your family. They are your son. They are your daughter. Now, they might be spending the rest of their life trying to believe and live into that reality that's true about them, but they are not trying to earn their way into your family. It's already been done. And I think that's the difference between justification by works and justification by faith in Christ. Look, I know this can get kind of complicated explaining some of this stuff, so let me see if I can put it in simplest terms as I know how to put it. I think the biggest difference between um, the Roman Catholic belief system in justification by works and New Testament Christianity justification by faith in Christ alone, I think the way that you can understand that difference is the difference between a prescription um, and a transplant. So what do I mean? I, I want you to imagine with me real quick a scenario where you have a... Uh, very rare, but terminal heart condition. And so the doctors have never seen anything like it, and you have less than a year to live, and so it's bad. And I want you to imagine there's a brilliant doctor, very brilliant doctor, who decides that she's going to study your case. And so she does, and um, she researches it. She's never seen anything like it. And then she goes on all around the world to do research and try to figure out what she can do to help. And I want you to imagine that after a few months of researching and traveling, she comes back to you and she says, Eureka. That she says, I have good news. I have found, I have found the cure. I have found the antidote to your heart condition. And she gives you a prescription. And she says, here it is. She says, I've spent all of my energy and all of my time trying to come up with this, but this is it. And she gives it to you and she says, it's free of charge. You don't have to pay for it. It's a gift to you. And she says, but here's the thing. You have to take this every single day for the rest of your life. You have to take a pill every single day for the rest of your life. And if you do, you will be healthy and you will go on to live a healthy and normal life. And then she tells you this, but if you miss a day, if you miss a day, it'll cost you your health. And if you miss two days, it'll cost you your life. Okay. Now, let me ask you a question. Is that, is that good news? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yes, it's, it's better than what the alternative would be, right? But, but let me ask you this question. Are you saved? Uh, maybe, kind of. Like, if you keep with it, yes. Now, I just want to say that's real different than imagine a scenario where a doctor comes to you and he says, hey, we've researched your condition, and I want to let you know we have discovered a 100% guaranteed it's going to work and it will heal you surgery. And it's a heart transplant, but what it requires is it requires that there's a donor who has a, per, who has a good, healthy heart. 
And if you're willing to, all you have to do is say yes. And there's someone who will sacrifice themselves and give you what you do not have in yourself. And they're going to impute and impart to you your heart, their heart. And when you have that heart, you will live a healthy life for the rest of your life from that point forward. Now, now that is very different. That is very different. See, that's the difference between, man, a process and an event. That is the difference between one that requires me to work every day for the rest of my life and one that is all based on the work of another. And I think that's the difference between works righteousness and faith in Christ justification. That's the difference. So let me just say this as we kind of wrap up. I, I am convinced, convinced, as much as I know how to be, and I, I'm not God, so I'm not the judge, but I am convinced with every fiber in my being that there are people who would consider themselves Catholic, maybe even some of you, maybe some who are worshiping in Catholic churches this morning, who have never understood and have never come to find the freeing grace in justification by faith in Christ alone. I guarantee there's Catholics who have missed this. And let me just say this. I guarantee that there are people who are in this church who claim to be followers of Jesus who have missed this, who have never come to find the liberating freedom of the grace of God through justification and faith alone. I'll also say this. I am convinced, convinced with every fiber in my being that there are people who are Catholic, who would identify as Catholic, who do know the grace of God and have discovered it and have experienced the liberating freedom of justification by faith in Christ. And I believe that there's those of us among us who have found that as well. So the question this morning isn't, are you a Catholic or are you a Protestant? That's not the question. Let's just put that aside. Here's the question. Have you discovered the life-giving freedom of the gospel, the grace of Jesus Christ that's based on not your works, but on what he's done. Have you found that? Because that's the difference, and that's where freedom is found. I'm gonna ask the band to make their way up here at this time, and you know, as we kind of close out, I thought maybe it'd be helpful for you, no matter where you are in your faith position, I thought it might be helpful for me just to ask you a few questions that I think maybe are clarifying around this whole topic. So let me just ask you a couple things. Um, in your relationship with God, do you find that you interact in that relationship in a way that you're living for something or you're living from something? Which better explains your relationship with God? Do you find that in your relationship with God, you feel like you're living for acceptance, you're living for approval, you're living for forgiveness, you're living for justification? Or do you find that you're living from approval and from acceptance and from love. You're not trying to earn love, you're living from love. I believe this right here is the big difference between justification by works and justification by faith in Christ alone. I think this is the big difference between Roman Catholicism and New Testament Christianity. How about this one? Do you find in your walk with God, is your life with God a must-do life or is it a get-to life? Which one is it? So is it, I must do these things, and I'm afraid if I don't, I'm not gonna be accepted by God. I must, take the I must take communion, because if I don't, I'm afraid I'm going to slip from grace. I must go to church, 
because if I don't, I'm afraid I might lose the grace that God has for me? Or is it that, no, I get to. I get to take communion and remember the wonderful thing that Jesus Christ has done for me. I get to go to church and be with other people who are his sons and daughters, and we get to experience his life together and hear from him. Is it a must do or is it a get to? I think that's the difference. I think that's the difference. How about this one? Is it my, my relationship with God operates out of a place of fear and insecurity? I'm constantly scared and I live in a perpetual state of insecurity that I'm not doing enough and that I might fall from grace. Or do you, have you found the liberating freedom that comes and man, Jesus did it all for me. And so now I can just live from a place of gratitude. I just want you to know that according to the gospel, this is the kind of life that God has on offer for you. He wants you to live not for something, but from something. He wants you to live not a must do, but a get to. And he wants you to live in the liberating freedom that comes. But that man, he loves you. And he's done all the work. I'll end with this last thought. You know, in John 19, the last words that Jesus is recorded as saying on the cross is this right here. It's right before he breathed his last, he said, it is finished. That's what he said. And it's actually pretty powerful. In the Greek, the word he, he, it is finished is the word tetelestai. And that actually was a word that was used in the first century that was written on receipts. And it basically was a way of saying it's paid in full. Like it's, it's done, it's a receipt. And I just want you to think, how amazing is it? How wonderful is it? What good news is it that after Jesus died on the cross, that before he finished, right before he gave his last breath, that what he did was he gave us a receipt. It's done. It's paid. In full, it's finished. My work is accomplished. There's nothing else you can do to add to what I've done. It's done. See, when Jesus was on the cross, you guys, he didn't, he didn't give us a bill. He didn't give us a balance. He didn't say, I'll split the difference with you. He didn't say, I'll cover the tab, you cover the tip. He's like, no, I'll do it all. I'll do it all. And it's done. It's finished. To tell us die. I'm just telling you, man, that is what he offers to you and I. There's nothing we can do to add to the work that he's done on the cross for us. And that, that is the difference. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, we do just want to say thank you for what you did. And Father, I know that there's a natural proclivity in every single one of our hearts to feel like we need to earn something from you because that's just the way this world works. But man, that's not how you work. And I'm so thankful that we can be justified, we can be made right, we can be approved, that we can stand free and uncondemned before you because of what you did, Jesus. And so, Father, thank you for that. Thank you. And I wanna pray specifically for the person in this room today, God, who maybe, you know, maybe for the first time, this is making sense. You know, it never made sense before, but it's making sense today. And they're, they're hearing about your grace and what you've done. And Lord, maybe there's some people who are in this room who are ready to give their life to you. They're ready to put their faith in you. And if that's the case, then I pray that even right now, that, that, that for that person, whoever you might be in this room, 
I pray that you would just talk to God and that you would place your faith in him. What's keeping you from that? So God, I pray you'd work in that person's heart. And as we sing these songs, I pray that you'd fill our hearts with gratitude and thanksgiving and that we would be able to sing from a place of love. We'd sing from a place of gratitude that you have done it all for us. There's nothing we can do to add to your finished work. We just celebrate that and we say thank you for it in Jesus' name.